Welcome to the VR Fitness Insiders Podcast for the creators who are building the future of the VR and AR sports and fitness industries that will revolutionize the way the world will play sports, work out, and get fit. With your hosts, Preston Lewis and Ryan DeLuca, the founders of Black Box VR, who are building the world's first full fitness VR gym and bring decades of experience from creating some of the largest fitness technology companies in the world. They're bringing together the best and brightest minds to help you and your company succeed in the VR fitness revolution. All right, welcome to the VR Fitness Insider Podcast. We have a VR, AR, XR guru and pioneer here with us today, Six Live. Six, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So why don't we start off with you just giving our audience a quick intro into who you are and your background. The story of San Francisco of why I came up here is actually a funny one. I'll tell it real quickly. When I originally came to the West Coast, I was originally from the Midwest. I was from Minnesota, Colorado, Minnesota. And what brought me to the West Coast is I was selling computer hardware and I kept shipping it back to a place called City of Industry. I heard that name and I was like, wow, you know, like City of Industry, right? I was just so fucking tired of how cold the Midwest was. And I would always joke with my friends that someday I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to drive to the West Coast and you're never going to see my ass again. And I did that. (laughs) I did that one day and I showed up in City of Industry, which is outside of Los Angeles and it's just the warehouses, right? <laughs> it's like, right. You know, here I was, Opposite. industry, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I showed up there and I was like living in a fucking warehouse. Definitely not like a warm beginning to California. But actually, that's when I started calling myself Six. So it's not my birth name. My birth name is different. I think a lot of people, when they make huge life decisions, they sometimes want to change themselves and who they were and everything. And six was my online identity. But yeah, a short story about why I came up to San Francisco is I was working in technology in a rudimentary sense. I didn't understand all the tech lingo and all this VC nonsense that we have up here. But I was in California at the time and I heard about this app called Yo!, And it was a push notification app. And all the app did was when you press your friend's name and it would do a push notification said, yo, and that raised Mm -hmm. millions of dollars. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck they are smoking in San Francisco. It's like a Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley episode. (laughs) That's right. They are out of their minds. Yeah. So so that's why I came up to San Francisco and now I've been stuck here for eight years, but that's the story of how I made it up here. It was nice. like, wow, these guys are nuts. And I want to be part of that because. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I love it. It was like city of uh, industry. I could just imagine what you were like envisioning was just like this utopia of yeah, businesses like, and stuff. And then just to show up at a warehouse is hilarious. I rises and I showed up and it's literally just warehouses. It's called city uh, of industry. So but it's the industrial district. So definitely not a rosy entrance to California. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Sounds like you've had some really fun experiences in California with the Yo app and the road trip and leaving all your friends behind (laughs) and moving to the city Mm -hmm. industry. But tell our audience how you got interested in VR. Why did you get interested in it? What first drew you to it? Yeah, so the first jobs I had in San Francisco were IT jobs. So I was basically fixing shit for people, whether it was companies <laughs> or high net worth people. I fixed one of the co-founders of Google's like personal Wi-Fi, set up Justin Kahn's Wi-Fi. Wow. Uh, he, he probably doesn't know that I was that task rabbit dude setting up his fucking Wi-Fi. But, you know, someday 
someday I'll tell that you still story. Have his password. Um, <laughs> yes, humble first uh, beginnings here. So, but my background was very different than a lot of tech people in San Francisco. A lot of tech people in San Francisco were working on mobile applications and SaaS products and things like that. They were very deep on that end. I was working in IT stuff my whole life, either on the hardware side or just fixing stuff all the time. So I had that unique perspective. I got into VR because I was working as an IT guy and I got access to the DK2. So I wasn't OG enough to say DK1. Unfortunately, I wasn't that early into VR. So I got the DK2 and I was trying it out and I was like, this is really fucking cool. But it wasn't quite enough to get me to commit my life to it. I tried some of the experiences where I was sitting down using a controller and I was moving my head around. I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. The racing stuff I really got into. But then I got access to the Vive Pre, you know, the dev kit before the Vive came out. Mm. I got the Vive Pre and I had an early build of a space pirate trainer. And I was playing it in the living room. So when I moved to San Francisco, I was living with 50 people in this co-living kind of hippie-ish thing where like people would come together to try to survive the outrageous costs of living in San Francisco. They would cook each other food and stuff. So I lived with 50 fucking people when I came to San Francisco. And it wasn't a bunch of homeless tents. It was actually a a place. (laughs) It was definitely very humble beginnings when I came to San Francisco. But I had the Vibe Pre and I set it up in the living room there. And I played Space Pirate Trainer. And I remember a moment where I was shooting at the drones And a drone shot at me and the laser was coming Mm. towards me. And every single moment in my gaming life prior to this, I've been obsessed with video games my entire life. I like to tell people that video games raised me more than my parents did, which I don't know if they're going to (laughs) appreciate me saying that publicly, but (laughs) Elder raised me more than my dad. Uh, (laughs) We're not going to get too far into that. (laughs) Uh, But I had this moment. The laser's coming towards me, and every single part of my gamer brain is thinking, press down on the thumbstick, and this is how you're going to dodge it. But then I was like, wait a second. My body is the controller. And I did one of these matrix moves that went like back like this, and the laser went over me, and I came back, and it was like, that is the future of gaming. I am the controller now. Holy shit. You know, and it was like the convergence of everything that I believed in as a human being about personifying your own new identity, about physicality and about video games all coming together, that perfect connection of who I was. And that's what got me into the space. I think we all have that moment, right, in VR. Of course, everyone does that Richie's Plague experience. And, oh, I actually feel like I was falling. And, like, when you really realize, you actually feel like you're there. And I think it makes total sense. Like, video games always have been a controller or a keypad where you're thinking that you are actually in that world and pretending that you're that character. You're obviously fully removed from it on a flat screen. And it's the dream that we always wanted. We always pretended we were that thing. And then all of a sudden, VR, yep. now you are in there. Like you said, like the first time you have to move and you, you don't want to move because you're not really sure where you're at in real space. But then once you do it, it's pretty magical. Space Pirate Trainer was amazing for its time. It was one of the earlier titles. And I still think they have some of the best graphics and mechanics in there. Yeah, it was incredible. I think the first game that can get the crown for the first fitness game in VR, I would say is probably Audio Shield. Audio Shield was something that our CTO at at Live absolutely loved. It wasn't seen as like a very obvious use case in the beginning of virtual mm-hmm. reality. You're wearing this thing on your face. Why do you want to run around too? Like even Carmack, <laughs> 
even John Carmack, the CTO of Oculus at the time, he wasn't convinced at all on active movement in VR. He's like, why the fuck would I put on a headset and run around, you know? We're going to want to sit down. And even the first experience with the Oculus, it was like an Xbox controller. And it was the two cameras in front of you, if you only had two. You couldn't yeah. even move all the way uh, in a circle. And so it did seem to make sense. And we have the same story. Like we heard him say that. And then now, of course, he'd yeah. talk about exercising in VR yeah. all the time with Beat Saber. Yeah, the last time I see him, he's got the forearms and everything. He's like, these are Beat Saber arms. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> these are Beat Saber arms. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that That's then great. led you into starting companies in the XR space. First one being Live. You want to tell us a little bit about co-founding that and how that went and what you learned from that? You know, I was super interested in VR. And then there was this co-working space in San Francisco called Upload, which it was a great place for people to come together. I know there's been controversy about Upload, but I had a lot of positive experiences there, especially with some members of the team. The guy who approved me to be part of this co-living space was a guy named Oz. Oz ran all the mixed reality stuff at the location. And when I met Oz, he had this green screen room and he was doing mixed reality where he was putting people in the game and showing everybody outside of VR what it was like to be in VR. And when I saw him doing that, it answered one of the biggest fundamental problems that we had in our space, which was what the fuck are you doing, right? If you see someone in a headset and they're sitting down and they're just like going like this, like the first inclination a lot of people had is, are they watching porn? Like, what the fuck are they doing in that headset, you know? <laughs> and, um, and turned out 50% of the time, that was true. For Gear VR, I would say that was probably true, let's be honest. But, you know, when we <laughs> moved to like full body tracking... If you were to look at someone playing Beat Saber and not have any context at all, right? You'd be like, what? Like, is this person tripping balls? What the hell are they doing? But then when you took the virtual world and you, and you showed people the context of what was happening, it went from dorky to cool. And I'm a strong believer that technology shifts happen when you make something dorky cool. It's as simple as that. Mm. And so... If you look at the evolution of electric cars, Elon Musk literally called his line sexy, right? Because electric mm -hmm. cars up to that were like smart cars and stuff like that, where everybody thought electric cars were fucking dorky, right? And so one of the big things that I always look at in the space is how do we make this cool? And then Zuckerberg comes in there and makes it the most dorky shit in the world. Anyway, <laughs> tangent, little bit of a tangent, but Liv was able to communicate something that was inherently dorky and make it cool. And also allow people a window into VR. So you could see what the yep. person was doing in real time. And so Oz was doing this. I was like, this is amazing. And then how do we create a product out of this? And so that became the big question. Some of the people that I used to live with in this 50-person co-op had moved into their own apartment. Their name was AJ and Pierre. So they were my two friends. I like went to them and I basically co-opted their living room into a big mixed reality green screen. Um, hmm. And I was sleeping on the couch and like setting this up in their living room. And we just got obsessed with it. I, I like to think of it kind of like, you know, as kids, you would record yourself in the cassette player and pretend you were radio jockeys or something. I feel like we were kind of having hmm. that moment where we had this green screen and then AJ went in there with a Super Saiyan hat on. And there was this game where you could have miniguns. It was called Serious Sam. And he had this 
video where he will go in and he had mini guns in his arm and he had like a super saiyan thing it was just us doing ridiculous <laughs> stuff and aj had experience in the startups more directly and how to speak to investors and whatever and we got into tech stars from there and live is doing pretty well right now i think they just raised eight and a half million and that's the story of live so true so you're awesome. saying though it's so difficult to understand what people are doing inside the headset and if you see the amount of flat screen it can even really be difficult we struggle with that a lot of black box like how do you show people we still do how do you show people what you're doing and yeah. we create some different kind of green screen type of environments but it's just so difficult and such a big problem that live was solving which is still a problem and people still struggle with that but just how great it's been to see what live has done to, to help with that i wish they would make like a one-click mixed reality partner with a camera company and just press a button and go for it but uh it's coming people. it'll come out eventually <laughs> yeah to piggyback on that one of the cool things that we really appreciate you doing throughout your career so far has been taking this platform approach to building your projects and products and yeah the whole industry has massively benefited from those efforts. I probably venture to guess that Live is maybe the number one piece of software used for mixed reality videos. And I'd probably say it's most, if not all of the viral VR videos were probably made with Live software as well. So Blackbox VR, when we first used your software, we saw people finally understand like, oh, wait a minute, you're in an arena and oh, wait a minute, you're interacting with a machine and you're doing fitness yeah. movements. And so honestly, huge thanks to you and your team for doing that, because I think it's been awesome for the industry. Yeah, the Beat Saber stuff was a crazy story. We were working with someone who is a fire spinner. Her name was Swan. Oh. So the story of the viral event with Beat Saber, I don't know if I'll ever have an event like that before. Like some people say viral when they have like a million views or something. This shit hit a billion views like globally wow. across everything. There was one yeah. video on Facebook that hit 200 million by itself. That level of virality mm -hmm. I have never seen before. And it happened to me. We were just cool. creating videos. And it was usually just me or just some people I know. And I definitely amp it up, but you know, men in video games and stuff, nothing super novel about that. So I had a friend named Swan and she went in there and she was just like recording videos of herself. And we were not even thinking a whole lot about it. We were just like recording these videos and then posted it to YouTube. The first one she had where she had like a Jedi outfit on. And then the video that went viral was the second one that we posted on YouTube. And it started taking off a little bit, but nothing like outrageous. I fell asleep and I woke up and I looked at my phone. It was like 300 notifications. And I was like, what the yeah. fuck is going on? And I opened it up. <laughs> Like you're on GameStop no. and you're on the front of that and all over the place. They had taken our fucking video and we had a watermark on the bottom right and they had just like mm. blurred it out. <laughs> I would call that moment the consumer event of VR. Before mm. then, we were like early adopters that thought this geeky stuff was cool. But at that moment, mm. it broke out of that limited market that we had. These videos can reach everyone. I always remember that moment. It was definitely a combination so cool. of a bunch of things. And, you know, the biggest learning that I had from Liv that I take to the next companies after, which is important for this podcast, was that physicality was so essential to communicating to people why VR was interesting. Because anytime that we had mixed reality or a video of someone like sitting there doing something, no one gave a shit. 
But mm. when you had added physicality and people were like dancing and involved in the content, it would it would perform like a hundred times better. The way that I like to think about that is the difference between a movie and a play. So in a play, you're not necessarily seeing the facial movements of someone. You're kind of like removed and farther away. Um, so you have to be loud and expressive. And because our face is covered and you're not like communicating, you know, the, the, the nuances of your face, you have to use body language. And it's the same thing that happens in sports, right? Like when you watch a sport, you're not looking at their face, you're looking at their body, right? And so the biggest learning from Liv that got me into understanding the importance of physicality beyond my own passion with it was no one gave a shit about the content if people weren't active. They just didn't care. They were like, okay, someone's being dorky in a headset. No, you know, I don't care. It's such a good point. I mean, just the way you put it, the physicality. And, and people like to watch people doing physical movements, right? And sports right. And, and fitness. And so it's just this perfect mix when that Beat Saber video came out. I think we all were a little bit shocked. <laughs> what is this thing? We'd, like, It's something to do with lightsabers and music and yeah. it was just everywhere. And then that's when we had like our non- early adopter or non-VR like expert friends asking us about it. Like, oh, that's that game with the lightsabers, you know? And it's like, everybody yeah. knew about it. Yeah. I think Beat Saber owes you some uh, royalties. I was in there helping them a lot with marketing in the early days. I think that the success of Beat Saber was not necessarily just Beat Saber itself. It released with only a few songs, six to seven songs. It was the content that, that made it interesting. And then there was a very large modding group that came out of it of about 400,000 people. And that modding group made it so they basically took the base fundamentals of Beat Saber and allowed yeah. you to put whatever song you wanted in there. And I think realistically, if it weren't for those videos and then subsequently that modding discord to maintain its relevance. And then the final piece of that was that it became the flagship for the quest. I think those were the three big like, moments that you could say that that connected to the success of Beat Saber. Every six to nine months, there was something that hit right at the right time. It was a huge amount of luck involved, to be honest. That initial launch was perfectly timed. The game came out with a bunch of fanfare and all these videos. And then it became the largest VR Discord in the world of, of hundreds of thousands of people. They actually had to start kicking people out because it went over Discord's limit were creating mods with like different swords and songs and whatever. And that got around the copyright issue where most developers had to license every single song, which gets incredibly expensive. So they had this whole community essentially making infinite content. And then the final piece of that is when it came out on the quest, it converted so well to the quest and it didn't have some of the issues that some of the other VR games had. Like Servios, for example, couldn't port a lot of their games to the Quest because of the fidelity that was necessary to, to port it. So there was a lot of developers who created really amazing experiences who had a really hard time porting it down to the Quest. So there was like three big things that really pushed the success of Beat Saber to the point where it hit 50% device penetration of the entire VR market. It was on over 50% of all headsets in the world, which was wow. so that's nuts. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. It, it's funny you say that because it's so true, like the, the custom content, the custom songs, like that was the best part about it, right? It's like there were so many different songs and maps and like endless amount, right? And you could find any songs that you liked and all sorts of crazy stuff. And of course, people would rate the best ones. You'd learn new songs. There's so many, so much music that I just learned about that I never even heard about that now I'm a fan of through that. 
Yeah. And to me, that's what kind of ruined it when it went to Quest because it was a perfect experience for Quest because wireless, yeah. you know, because I was always playing it on the Vive or the, or the Index. But going to wireless is just so great, you know, and they even made the 360 modes and stuff. But, you know, it kind of leads into the next thing is one of the best parts about Beat Saber being the flagship game that became like really the first mainstream game that introduced people to VR was the thing we always hear, right? Hey, I tried this Beat Saber game. It was super fun. I loved it. And then I realized I'm exercising. Like yep. it could have been some other VR game that wasn't really an active game that became the first big one. But the fact that the first big one had such an exercise cardio component to it was also really good for showing fitness as a powerful way to use VR. So tell us about why you are. That lets you into your next big thing, your next company. Yeah. So I had to leave, leave Live for various reasons. One of the reasons was is the team basically became European based and I had a hard time with the idea of like moving to the Czech Republic. You know, I, I hadn't started a company thinking I would have to move to the Czech Republic. So I made some decisions to ensure that like my departure would be okay for the company and AJ became the CEO, which was, you know, my, my roommate way back then. But I was itching to do something again right away. In hindsight, I probably should have taken a little bit of a break. Going straight from startup 200 miles an hour to another 200 miles an hour, it kind of breaks you. But I strongly believed in VR fitness. And prior to that, I've been working a little bit with the VR Health Institute with Aaron uh, Stanton. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll give him credit. He saw VR fitness as becoming a big thing. And I was trying to find a way to work with him. And I'll say this, we were trying to find a way to work together, but he strongly believed in the efficacy of everything to like an nth degree. Like we need to have it peer reviewed. We need to have heart rate trackers that are validated by whatever. And I was like, dude, we just got to prove to people that people are fucking exercising. I was trying to figure out a way to work with him. He didn't want to co-found it with me. He's probably a little mad at me now, <laughs> whatever, like shit happens in the startup mm -hmm. world. But I decided not to work with him because he didn't want to be a co-founder with me. And he was so focused on efficacy of everything. And for me, having built a consumer company before, proving at all that people are doing something with the least friction possible is how you build a consumer company, right? So my thesis was, okay, we're going to move towards a headset that's no longer tethered. I think fitness is going to be one of, if not the biggest use case. People would laugh at my fucking face. Even Aaron had the same experience. Like people thought we were a joke, right? He tells the story about how he was trying to prove to people that VR is fitness and people would tell him, no, you're just scared. That's why your heart rate is high. You know, like zombies are after you. That's why your heart rate is high. It's not because you're exercising. It's because you're scared of what's going on. I'm fucking exercising, man. He was trying to prove to people that it was a thing. I didn't have to be proved. I believed in it, right? But I was just trying to find, you know, how do we create a consumer product out of this? I started thinking, okay, well, let's try to solve this in a way that is the least friction possible. I'm fast forwarding a little bit here. So another person that really believed in VR fitness, there weren't many, by the way. I remember a meeting that I had with Oculus during OC6 where I tell them, I said, hey, VR fitness is going to be a big thing. They almost fucking laughed me out of the room. They were like, what are you talking mm -hmm. about, right? And I think mm -hmm. this is mainly due to the fact that the way Facebook determines product value is based off existing metrics that they can go into a PM meeting and say, hey, this is happening. We should do that too. They have a very difficult time with foresight. And I think culturally, that is the biggest problem with Facebook is that 
They only operate on existing data and they don't have the foresight to see how something can evolve into something. And so I had that experience where they almost like laughed me out of a room for pitching VR fitness. Anyway, there was one other guy who lived in San Francisco who believed in VR fitness and his name was Dylan. And I met up with Dylan and I was like, dude, VR fitness is a thing. I didn't have to convince him it was a thing. And that was one of the biggest issues that I had with co-founding this company is I would go to people and they'd be like, VR fitness, what are you talking about? So Dylan, I didn't have to convince him. And so we started Why You Are from that. And we got into Boost, which was a accelerator here in San Mateo. Basically, it was just because I think Adam Draper liked me. And he, <laughs> you know, like, if I'm to be real, I think that's what happened. He's like, Six, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, man, but I'm a bet on you. You know, one of those things, right? <laughs> yeah. Like nice. Dylan hadn't even committed to be in the company by then. So I came back to Dylan. I said, hey, <laughs> if you want to do this, we're in Boost now. We have a little bit of money. So we wanted to create the least friction way to get involved in this. So our very first product was a mod in Beat Saber. And we already had, going back to what powered Beat Saber, was this massive modding community. And it kind of skirted around some of these different platform issues that we'd have. Like, could we actually integrate into Beat Saber officially? Probably not, right? Especially not right out of the gate. So we created this mod for Beat Saber and it became incredibly successful. We started Basically, what YUR was, was a subset initially of the Beat Saber modding discord wanting to exercise. And so that community that we built was initially the base group, a subset of that Beat Saber modding group. And it was so interesting because this was a demographic that no one else ever appealed to in the fitness space. It was gamers, a lot of them super unhealthy that were exercising by accident. And it was almost like Beat Saber made them feel like I have a chance now to actually be fit. These were the guys that you've seen in the memes where they're like eating chips on the couch type. That was our main demographic, right? Was kids who felt apathetic to even the idea of exercising. And what it was, was a really good Trojan horse that made people have the confidence that they actually could start exercising, right? And that was the subset of the initial community in YUR, the subset of the Beat Saber modding group that realized, hey, I can actually exercise. That was our initial product. It went incredibly well. So then we created a Steam-based tracker that basically would take your movement data and estimate very rudimentary, you know, initially, into what calories you were burning. And then it evolved into a quest app that you had to sideload. And we got a little bit more fancy over time where we were using machine learning to estimate your heart rate based off data that we had on heart rate. But the goal was basically to create a Fitbit that didn't require any hardware. And that was kind of the underlying goal of why you are. And uh, yeah, it worked incredibly well. I think we became the number two utility in quest for a given time until it uh, was deplatformed. <laughs> <laughs> so one question I want to ask is, just sounds like you are very connected to users through these projects and products you're building, which I think is really important for our audience to hear because a lot of people building these experiences, you know, people approach it from a bunch of different angles, whether it's, hey, we have a gut feeling, we're just going to do it, or we don't necessarily need the validation because we just feel good about it. Sounds like from what you've mentioned and from what we gather, you're the opposite. You of course have the gut feeling, but sounds like you 
have really stayed close to your users throughout the journey and listened to them throughout the process. So maybe just a quick little brief hit on that for our audience. What would you recommend as people are building the product as far as knowing which direction to go, validating the things they're building and things like that? You have to have a feedback loop with your users, right? One of the things that I did that you could argue is not a good thing for a CEO to be doing, and at scale that's true, is that every single negative review, I would reach out to that person and ask them why. And I'd be like, okay, so why are you leaving us a negative review? And they'd be like, well, the UI here sucks, or it's affecting the performance of what I'm doing, or I don't think it's accurate, right? And I chase after the people that didn't like our product and find out why they didn't like our product instead of just being like, oh man, I'm so sad people don't like what we're doing, right? I guess the difference between me and some people who work in tech is I get punched in the face and I just see it as this is what I'm doing, right? When you start Mm -hmm. a company, if you don't want to be punched in the face, get a fucking day job, honest to God, go (laughs) get a fucking day job. And if the worst thing that's going to happen to you is your manager is going to be upset at you, that's a good day. You guys know this. Like if you want to be a founder, you have to be able to like get punched in the face every fucking day and do it again. One of the lowest points I've ever had, a little bit of a tangent here, is I pitched during Techstars. And this is back before anybody really cared a whole lot about VR. And I gave this big, impassionate speech on why I believe virtual reality is going to be the future. And it was like, oh, I felt so good about myself. And the second I stopped, an investor raised their hand. And he goes, the second you said VR, I stopped listening. And I'm like, man, fuck you, dude. Like, what is that? Like, you discredit an entire category? Like, I don't care. Fuck off, man. Kind of crazy. We see the same thing. Like, VCs, a lot of times investors, they always talk about their future thinking visionaries. They want to be a part of, like, things that people haven't seen yet. But when you really talk to them about something that isn't already mainstream or big or that everybody else is already investing into, you're right. It just doesn't really compute to them. And it's the same thing, like you said, with, like, big companies. I would say it's not just Facebook. It's almost all big companies. Like they want data that proves it. And that's really what creates that opportunity for entrepreneurs is mm-hmm. to get laughed in the face. And the interesting thing about being laughed in your face is half the time you should be laughed at and the other half the next big mm-hmm. thing. And it's always impossible at the time without looking back in retrospect to know which direction it really is going to go. I think the hardest thing as an entrepreneur for me is being able to distill constructive criticism from assholes. Right. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the people who you think are assholes are actually giving (laughs) you good feedback. And sometimes the assholes are just assholes. Right. And I think that's it's really hard to distinguish Mm -hmm. the two sometimes. Right. Like where someone is giving you feedback, but you're like, it's just like it's it's so personal to you what you're doing. You're like, okay, thank you. But fuck you. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like like instant. That's my baby. Yeah, yeah, it's like your baby. It's like someone going in and being like, man, your baby's ugly. And I'm like, who's my baby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? That's funny. Yeah. And then years later, you look back at pictures, you're like, man, that, that baby was kind of ugly. That person was right. That person was right. Yeah. I guess I mean, we're joking, but like, it's kind of just true. You look back at the business you had, like when we first came out with Black Box, the onboarding experience was just not good at all. But like, we just loved it so much. And then when we first started getting feedback, people were saying so many negative things. And of course, the first reaction you want to have is like, they're wrong. And like all these yeah. things, but then you sleep on it and you think about, okay, we need to make these changes. And it's a lot of hard work to make changes. 
But then you go back and you make those changes. Then you look back at your baby at the time and realize like, yeah, that wasn't good. And, and hopefully that's always the case. Hopefully you look two years from now and always look at what you're currently doing and say, it was not nearly as good as it is now. Otherwise you've been stagnant and it hasn't been yeah. forward. You haven't been listening to that feedback. I think listening to your users is absolutely foundational because if you talk to your friends, they're always going to give you a positive mm -hmm. spin or usually, or sometimes you just have a friend that shits on everything, right? And so your friends are usually really not a good proxy for whether or not what you're doing is good. And family is even worse. You know, family is either always yeah. going to be negative or always going to be positive, depending on if they think you're making money or not, right? So they're, mm -hmm. they're terrible for feedback loops. And then your co-founder, you can constantly be overly optimistic because you both believe in the same thing. So they're usually also not a good proxy. How do you get out of the bubble that is your brain into market mm -hmm. reality? And the market reality usually just exists with the people that use your product and getting them to actually communicate and tell you is, I think, the most valuable form of feedback if you're building a consumer company. Getting to the people that like your product or don't like your product and why. A little follow-up to that is do you have any small tips as far as how you go about intelligently collecting that feedback or is it just straight up scouring the Facebook posts, setting up a Discord, or do you have specific things that you do, for example, create surveys, do focus groups, or how does that process mm -hmm. go for you with collecting the feedback? If you communicate with a person, like directly, it's kind of like the difference between talking to someone through 4chan and talking to someone through their face, like face-to-face, -face, right? <laughs> if you're on 4chan, you're gonna shit on everything. It's almost like straight from brainstem to face, right? Like. This fucking is terrible. That shit, blah, 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 blah. And then when they talk to you, they're going to be like, well, I think you should, you know, improve this or whatever, right? So I think it's getting both of those perspectives, right? Because what you miss when you're speaking to their users are those who didn't even care enough to talk to you, right? Usually the users that you're talking to are somewhere between actual users and pro users, right? And you're usually getting not a lot of the feedback of the people that just churned instantly, right? They don't want to fucking respond to you. They don't give a shit. They don't want to tell you what their experience was. So you're going to have a blind spot on that category of potential users, right? So for those, you're going to have to like find it anecdotally through like Facebook posts or bad reviews. And this is why I would always chase the bad review people. If you're building that consumer product to understand What's churning people from the beginning and what improvements can I make for those casual users and then the pro users, should we cater to them or not? You know, so I, I think that mm -hmm. getting those three perspectives and maybe bucketing people in those three things is a good way to iterate on your product. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Six. So that's all for this episode. We decided to split this podcast into two episodes because Six had so much good stuff to share with you all. So join us for part two of this episode where we'll dig deeper into Six's upcoming XR project and we'll hear more of his awesome insights. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the VR Fitness Insider Podcast. Do you know of anyone that should be on our show or have feedback? Don't forget to email us at podcast at vrfitnessinsider.com and follow us at VR Fitness Insider on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also join our Discord channel. Until next time, keep creating and dreaming up the next big thing that will revolutionize the world of fitness.